Well, imagine you've gone to the grocery store to buy some fruits. And the minute you step into the store, you cannot but be drawn to the section where they, are, they have put the apples. In fact, the red apples look great. They kind of outshine the rest of the fruit section. So you go and you buy a package. And as you are driving home, all the way, the only thing you can think of are those apples. So you get home, and the first thing you do is to wash those apples. Now they even look shinier. So you pick up one of those apples, and you look at it, and you say, I cannot really stop until I have made you look like the Apple's logo. <laughs> so you cannot resist it any longer. You really want to take a bite of that red, juicy apple and taste the delicious taste of the apple. But the minute you take your first bite, this is what you'll see. The apple is rotten to the core. It looks disgusting from the inside. So you just spit it out, and you throw the rest into the garbage. You would be extremely angry, wouldn't you? Why would an apple, looking so great from the outside, be rotten from the inside? Now, if finding out that a great-looking apple being rotten inside would make us this angry, how do we expect that God would see us, that people who are corrupt within but look great on the outside. In fact, as we will see in our passage today, hypocrisy incurs God's wrath, for it is self-serving, and it neglects God's concern with the heart. We see in the beginning of our passage that Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's home for having a meal together. And throughout the Gospel of Luke, we see that there are three occasions in which Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's house to dine with him. And interestingly, they are really similar. One of them happens before our passage, and one of them happens later on. The first one is in chapter 7, when a woman with the alabaster box comes to Jesus, wets Jesus' feet with her tears, and wipes them with her hair. And Jesus looks at her and says, your sins are forgiven. The third one is in chapter 14, where Jesus goes to a Pharisee's house and heals a man who was suffering from dropsy. On both of these occasions, the Pharisees do not approve of what Jesus does. In the case of the woman with the alabaster box, their problem is that he seems to be talking to a woman with a bad reputation. And in the case of the man with dropsy, the issue they have is why would Jesus heal someone on the Sabbath. On neither of those occasions, the Pharisee actually say something. But Jesus, knowing what they are thinking, addresses the issue and leaves them stunned with his responses. Well, in our passage this morning, we see a similar thing happening. Verse 37, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Well, this is the beginning of the conflict that we are going to see. Now, if you read these verses, looking at it from the perspective of someone who lives in the 21st century, the Pharisee's astonishment might seem normal. We all wash our hands before eating. 
So maybe the Pharisee is very concerned with the hygiene. Maybe he doesn't want Jesus to be sick. He's concerned about Jesus' health. But that would be very far from the truth. The Pharisee, for him, the issue is not health. It is ritual purity. It is true that there are some passages in the Old Testament that talk about people who wash their hands before they eat something. But those passages are merely descriptive. But what the Pharisees are doing here are taking those descriptive passages and turning them into something prescriptive, something that everyone must do at all times. Notice that like the other two occasions, the Pharisee doesn't say anything. But Jesus knows that what is going on in his mind, and so he brings up the issue. Verse 39. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. We might wonder why Jesus is here talking about the cups and dishes, whereas the Pharisees' objection was, why doesn't Jesus wash his hands? Well, the reason is that Jesus doesn't want to deal with only this particular issue. He wants to go to the root of the problem, and it covers a variety of issues. The Pharisees are very concerned with things outside of a person. This ritual cleansing had its focus on the external side. But for some reason, they don't seem to be bothered with what was inside a person. Take the example of a cup. You can clean the outside of the cup as much as you want, and it will start to shine. But if the inside is not clean, whatever you drink or eat from that cup would also be unclean. So it doesn't really matter how much the outside is clean. It is what is inside that, that is important. So if we are living in the first century, and we look at a Pharisee, we might be really impressed by the extent to which he is willing to go to make sure that he did not come in touch with anything impure, that he followed the law to the very letter. And based on what we could see, we could judge him to be a very holy and righteous man, concerned with God's law and willing to go to any extreme to uphold that law. But what Jesus is saying here is that all that external holiness all that care about ritual cleanliness is a mere sham. It's just a show. Because deep inside, hidden from the eyes of the people who look at them, their hearts are full of greed and wickedness. Their hearts are evil. Now, the Pharisees might consider themselves very clever. Well, people are not able to see into their hearts. So they can be whatever they want, as long as they keep up a good image, people would believe them and would consider them holy. But how can they even imagine that such a strategy would work with God, whose eyes see everything deep within our hearts? In verse 40, Jesus continues, You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Well, Jesus is here asking a rhetorical question. How could they be so foolish to think that it is sufficient to put up a good polished front while in their hearts they harbored evil desires? Isn't God the one who has created both the inside and the outside of human beings? 
how could they even imagine that they can live double lives, holy without but evil within, and be all right? Jesus continues to say in verse 41, but give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Well, giving alms is a sign that you care about other people, about their well-being, about their health. Jesus is saying here that we should be as concerned about the things within us. True cleanliness, true purity, is not about washing our hands or cups or bowls. True purity is a matter of the heart. Now, Jesus begins a series of six woes. A woe is a cry for God's just judgment in the light of an action that deserves a divine response. It signifies impending doom, God's anger and condemnation. It's also here an exclamation of sadness over those who fail to recognize the true misery of their condition. The first three woes are directed against the Pharisee. Verse 42, but woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Well, tithing was part of the Mosaic law. There were different forms of tithing. One type involved a 10% of farm produce, oil, and wine, which was to be enjoyed in Jerusalem or other appropriate locations. Another type of tithe involved giving 10% of the crops and the animals to the priesthood. And there was a third kind of tithe that involved the one that was given to the Levites or to the needy people, like the orphans and the widows. The Pharisees seems to have been very precise when it came to tithe. They knew how to tithe, whether it was mint, rue, or other herbs. They were really good at it. And Jesus here is not criticizing them for tithing. After all, tithing was part of God's law, and it was good. What Jesus finds unacceptable is that they seem to be so keen on one aspect of the law while neglecting and ignoring the rest of it. They are neglecting justice and the love of God. This is not the issue of doing one thing instead of another thing. It's the issue of doing one thing but neglecting the others. The Pharisees are picking and choosing which part of God's law to obey. Notice that Jesus doesn't tell them to stop tithing. He tells them that they should have paid equal attention to the other commands of God as well. And what they are neglecting is not some just minor issues. The command to do justice and love God are repeated all throughout the Old Testament. We saw one example of that in our Old Testament reading this morning. God is here talking to the Israelite and saying, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourself clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, 
seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Here in the Old Testament passage, we see that God's concern is with those issues like justice and taking care of the needy. So if you were offering sacrifices, but you were not doing those things, God didn't want that kind of sacrifice. Again, the underlying issue is that of the heart. The desire to do justice and love God can only arise out of the heart. And Pharisees are again condemned for neglecting that. Picture what the Pharisees might be feeling at this moment. They had come to this house to have a meal, have a good time, and possibly gloat in their self-proclaimed righteousness. And now they hear these words. They must be very uncomfortable. And then comes the next woe. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. I remember many years ago, I was having a discussion with a group of students. And I asked them, what time do you think it would be a good time to attend a wedding? Let's say it starts at 7 p.m. What time should we be there? 10 to 7? 7.15? 7.30? Well, at that time, I hadn't even seen Malaysia. <laughs> to know that when they say something starts at 7, it actually starts at 8. And people come at 8.30. But uh, that's another story. It was very interesting that a group of students told me it's not good to arrive on time. We should actually get there maybe 30 minutes late. So I asked them why they say such a thing. And they said, you know, if you arrive there on time, then every person who comes in, you have to wake up, you have to stand up, go to them, shake their hands, and greet them. But if you arrive there 30 minutes late, by that time, most of the guests would already be there. So when you go in, everyone would stand up, and they have to greet you. And, and they said, I love that kind of attention. <laughs> well, the Pharisees have the exact same problem. They are seeking attention. Not the kind of attention that you would assume a person just saying hi and a nod of the head. They are actually looking for elaborate greetings that would indicate that these Pharisees are having a very high status. They relish those moments, for their unquenchable pride could be momentarily satisfied. The issue, again, is one of the heart, isn't it? It's the heart's desire for fame and recognition that is being condemned by Jesus. And while the Pharisees might have been struggling to come to terms with those hard words, a third blow comes. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people watch over them without knowing it. Well, this third woe is the most painful one to hear. To understand how it must have felt, we need to know what the Mosaic law said about the graves and the dead bodies. In Numbers chapter 19, verse 16, we read, whoever in the open field touches someone who was killed with the sword, or who died naturally, or touches a human bone or grave, shall be unclean for seven days. It could not have been worse for the Pharisees, could it? The issue they had with Jesus was that he came, and before he had dinner, he, he didn't wash his hands. 
And that was considered a sign that it was impure. It was ritually impure. But here, Jesus is comparing them, the Pharisees, with unmarked graves that the law had declared impure. If the Jew wished to stay pure, he had to make sure that he doesn't come, in, come into contact with a dead body or the grave. But how could they know if the grave was unmarked? Jesus' third woe against the Pharisees indicates that rather than being a role model, they are actually misleading people. Their impure hearts would not just result in their own condemnation, it would also have an impact on those who are following them. By this time, the Pharisees would be turning and twisting in agony. The mask had been removed. Their hypocrisy had been exposed. Now, it's easy to read those verses and say, well, Jesus is here talking about the Pharisees, not us. These are not applicable to us. But if we are honest with ourselves, we realize that these words apply to us as well, don't they? I know I have been a hypocrite sometimes. On some Sundays, I had had an argument with my wife in the car before we come to church. But the minute I stepped out of the car and into the church, my frowning eyebrows would subtly change into a broad <laughs> smile. No one was to know what had happened. Everything was fine, all rosy and flowery. So while I greet each one of you, and I happily shake your hand. In my heart, it was filled with anger. Well, that is a pure act. That is hypocrisy. But on a deeper level, those of us who are here as Christians, we know that before we became believers, we were all hypocrites. We had this notion that we were good, that if there was a God, that if there was a heaven, God had to let us in and reward us, actually, for being so good. Yes, we would admit we sometimes lied, but we also say that you help someone, especially an old lady, cross the road. So God wouldn't have really punished us for lying. He would see the old lady being helped, and that would cover it, right? We would admit we sometimes cheated on the exam, but we also helped the guy's shopping bag when it was too heavy and we carried it all the way home. That should have covered it, right? That was the state of our hearts. On the surface, we were all righteous, all good, kind, loving, and caring. But deep within our hearts, there was malice, lust, jealousy, and every other evil thought. We were all hypocrites, and our hearts would have remained like that were it not for Jesus, who saw the deepest desires of our hearts, saw the evil within us, and called it the way it was. And he died on the cross to pay the punishment that we deserve. And then he gave us a new heart, a new heart with new desires, a desire to love God and a desire to do good, not to earn anything from God, not to be admitted to heaven, but to show how grateful we are for what God has done for us. Jesus' words remind us of the estate we were in, but they are also clear words of warning as well. There might be those who call themselves Christians, who come to church every Sunday, who listen to the sermons, 
who read the Bible, who attend the Bible study every week. They might be even serving in different areas, but in their hearts, they are exactly like the people who do not know Christ. There is not a single sign of change in their hearts. On the outside, they look righteous and holy and good, but inside, their hearts have remained unchanged. They might be coming to church every Sunday, sitting upright and having an aura of holiness around them. And they are happy with the attention and the recognition they get from people. But on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, they live and behave exactly like the rest of the world. Well, they should heed Jesus' words because hypocrisy incurs God's wrath for it is self-centered and neglects God's concern with the heart. We now come to the second part of our passage and there are three more woes. But this time, the focus is on the lawyers. Lawyers or scribes were those people who could interpret the law for the people. One of them, who is present at the scene, realizes that what Jesus had said is equally directed and applicable to them as well. So he decides to speak up. Verse 45. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you, incite, you insult us also. I do not know what was going in his mind at that moment. He must have felt uncomfortable that Jesus' words seemed to be directed at him and the rest of his colleagues. So he felt he should say something. He should object to Jesus. Maybe he was hoping that once he brought up the objection, Jesus would have said, well, I wasn't really talking about you. I was only talking about the Pharisees. But whatever he had in mind, I don't think he expected to hear what Jesus had to say. And Jesus said, woe to you lawyers also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourself do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Yes, the lawyer had understood it right. The words Jesus had spoken were directed at both the Pharisees and the lawyers. But now there is more. These lawyers, these people who were entrusted with the task of interpreting the law, were making it incredibly difficult for people. They were adding one rule after another, one obligation after another, to what people had already had to do. There was one set of law for the other people, and there was one set of law for themselves. These unnecessary additions would crush the people because they realized they were unable to meet all these demands. And this is a very serious issue. The scribes were supposed to be helping people, guiding people, teaching them rightly, not adding to their burdens, especially when those new burdens somehow do not apply to them. I once visited a church and noticed a board full of posters. So I went close and one in particular grabbed my attention. It listed the requirements for people who wanted to serve in that church. And the requirements included the promise not to watch TV or even own one in the house. There was also a promise required, never go to a cinema to watch a movie. The same attitude exists today, doesn't it? We keep hearing of people who set additional conditions for non-Christians before they can be considered real Christians. 
You have to speak in tongues. You have to fall backward. You have to have this and that kind of a spiritual experience. What are these but made up rules and requirements that would be nothing but unnecessary burdens for people to carry? We need to examine our interactions with non-Christians and to see whether we are adding anything to the gospel. Have we created our own version of Christianity? Then comes the second woe, 47. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your father killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they killed them, and you build their tombs. The pages of the Old Testament are filled with instances where God sends prophet after prophet to his people. He pleads with them to repent from their idolatry and turn to him. But not only the people refused to accept those words, they had the audacity to murder those prophets. The present generation of the Pharisees and lawyers were not physically there with their fathers. It was their ancestors, ancestors who put those prophets to death. But what Jesus is saying here, that they are no better. The ancestors had killed those prophets, and now they are building tombs. Well, we might ask, how does building tombs for prophets mean that they are approving of what their fathers did? Well, the reason is right in front of them. Their fathers rejected the prophets sent by God, and now they are rejecting Jesus, who in a sense is a prophet, but actually far greater than all the prophets. If you remember from Tim's sermon last week, Jonah was a prophet who preached to the people and they all repented. And Jesus said that he is a far greater prophet than Jonah. Not only Jesus is greater than all the prophets, he is the very person that all those prophets of the old were pointing to. Their ancestors had rejected the prophets, and now the Pharisees and the lawyers were following the footsteps of them, and they were rejecting Jesus. On the surface, building the tombs might indicate the desire you have to honor and respect those prophets. But if you are rejecting their message, you are basically a hypocrite. Building tombs for prophets would only signify that you are happy with what your fathers had done. As one commentator says, the lawyers built tombs for the prophets to make sure they stayed dead. Jesus continues this by making a prediction about what was going to happen in future. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. The phrase wisdom of God can best be understood as a reference to God himself. Jewish people had expressions like that, like the righteousness of God says. Jesus here is foreseeing a time when God would send prophets and messengers to his people. But like their ancestors, this present generation would kill and persecute them. We only need to look at the other book of the New Testament, written by Luke, the book of Acts, to see the hostility that Peter, Stephen, James, and Paul, among many others, had to endure. Rejecting God and his messengers is no simple offense, and there are going to be consequences. Verse 50. 
so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Here we see that the word prophet is used in a much broader sense than what we are used to, because it is used for Abel. Here the word prophet is used for anyone who testifies to God's way of righteousness. So on one hand we have Abel who, who died in the early years of human history. And on the other hand we have Zechariah whose account of martyrdom is recorded in the book of 2 Chronicles on the screen. Then the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest. And he stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord. He has forsaken you. But they conspired against him, and by command of the king, they stoned him with the stones in the court of the house of the Lord. All the prophets of the past had pointed to this very time and to this very person that they were rejecting now. So by rejecting Jesus, they were rejecting the message of the entire line of the prophets. So that is why Jesus says, the blood of all the prophets will be on this generation. And their punishment will indeed be far worse. And then we come to the final woe, addressed to the lawyers. Verse 52. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Again, one can hardly think of words that might be harsher to hear. These lawyers, these scribes, who prided themselves on their knowledge of the law and their ability to interpret it, hear from Jesus that although they have this key of knowledge, that is some sort of access to God because of his gracious relationship with his people and giving them the law, they are not going to be part of God's kingdom. The charge even goes further. Not only will they be excluded from the kingdom, they will end up causing others also to be excluded. These lawyers, who are also supposed to be the guides of people, are actually misleading them. And they are causing people to be farther and farther from the truth. This is a charge to all of those who are in leading positions, and they should take it seriously. Leading people in any area involves a huge amount of responsibility. Imagine you go on a tour, and your tour guide, who is supposed to be trustworthy, ends up taking you and all the rest of the team to a place you have no idea how to get out of. Several people die, many get injured. Who should be held responsible? Well, the tour guide. But leading people in a spiritual matters involves an even greater responsibility. The eternal destiny of people would be at a stake. Jesus' words are dire warnings for those who teach false doctrine, for pastors who add or distort the message of the gospel. Whether it is someone like Benny Hinn who promotes the prosperity gospel, or Victoria Austin, who says we should do good things for ourselves because God wants us to be happy. The punishment awaiting these people 
would be far more severe because they are misleading hundreds and thousands of people who trust them and believe that they are there to guide them on matters of great significance. When Jesus finishes talking, we can only imagine what the people must be feeling inside. Jesus' words have shattered the image they had put up for themselves. Their reaction in the final section should not come to us as a surprise. Verse 53, as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Truth was be too bitter to hear. Rather than heeding the words of the person to whom all the prophets in history had pointed, rather than repenting of their hypocrisy and evil ways, rather than turning to God and loving him with all their hearts, minds, soul, and strength, rather than to seek to uphold justice and to care for the needy, they lie in wait. Desperately seeking the moment when they can hear Jesus say something that they could use for their own benefit. Well, we know how that story ends. Jesus finally says something that they can use. At his trial, Jesus declares himself to be the promised king, the son of man, the son of God who has become flesh, who had come to deal once for all with human sin. Jesus' claim to divinity is, what they all, is all they need to crucify him on the cross on the charges of blasphemy. They finally managed to kill him, thinking that would be the end, not knowing that Jesus had come to earth for that very purpose, dying for my sins and yours. Recently, someone asked me a question. She said, when I read the Gospels, and I see all these things that Jesus is doing for people. He's healing the sick. He's raising the dead. He's feeding many people. He drives out the evil spirits. He's doing all these things. Why do the people hate him so much? And I told her, imagine you are in university. You are a student and a study. And there is one student in your classroom that does all the assignments that every question the lecturer asks, this person is the first volunteer to respond to those questions. In manners and character, they are blameless. How would you feel toward that student? She didn't even think. She said, I would hate him. <laughs> well, she is right. We would all hate him because that person's perfect life would expose our shortcomings, our weak points. Jesus' sinless life exposes our sinful life, and we would hate him. He looked into our hearts. He saw the evil in our hearts, but he didn't merely call it evil and was done with us. He dealt with the evil in our hearts by dying on that cross and by paying the penalty that we were supposed to pay. My dear brothers and sisters, we saw in our passage today that hypocrisy incurs God's wrath for it is self-centered and it neglects God's concern with the heart. We do not need to live double lives. We do not need to try to look good to gain other people's acceptance because the only person whose verdict matters 
our great and loving God, our Heavenly Father, knows every single thought and desire deep within our hearts. And in spite of what he sees, he loves us. He has shown his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for reminding us of the estate of our hearts, of all the evil desires and thoughts that we had within us, but those that we would hide to put up a good, holy, righteous image so that we can deceive others into thinking that we were good. Father, we thank you that you, the only person who could see deep into our hearts, saw what was wrong with us. And while you could justly punish us for our sins, for our enmity and hostility toward you, you graciously sent your Son to deal once for all with the problem of our hearts. We thank you that because of your Son's death and his glorious resurrection, that those who trust in him are now new creations, having been given a new heart, a heart of flesh, instead of the heart of a stone that we had. And Father, we thank you that for reminding us that the transformation of our hearts is only possible by your gracious work in our hearts. And Father, we pray that having realized that, you help us appreciate all the more what your Son did in our place for us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.